Episode 4. Bob Plays Songs About the President. Twenty years after its last outing, Dylan and the Crackers had rescued Dear Mrs Roosevelt from obscurity. Here was a song wreathed in mystery, and almost certainly Woody Guthrie's last complete composition. In 1968, no recording existed of Guthrie performing the song. Fifty years later, we still haven't heard Guthrie's panegyric to the president in its entirety. In its subject matter, Dear Mrs Roosevelt was not unique. No president in the history of the United States has inspired so many songs to promote and celebrate his time in office. Courtesy of the First Lady, Roosevelt acquired a keen appreciation of America's folk tradition. This was not so surprising given that despite his patrician background, FDR was no highbrow. His man of the people musical preferences were never more obvious than at election time. As we'll see in this and the next episode, Eleanor Roosevelt was remarkably knowledgeable about folk music and she shared the knowledge with her husband. Woody Guthrie knew who FDR was and the chances are that FDR knew who Woody Guthrie was. Mrs Roosevelt certainly knew all about Woody Guthrie and she could locate him within the explosion of American folk music that occurred in the 1930s and which in no small way she helped bring about. Eleanor Roosevelt was a party to the first folk revival and she was a witness to the second. He was someone who listened to Woody Guthrie's earliest recordings and lived long enough to hear Bob Dylan's first album. Like Guthrie, she immersed herself in the people's music, from California to the New York Island. It's not too absurd to suggest that in the last year of her life, Mrs Roosevelt found herself listening to Bob Dylan, recognising from the opening bars of You're No Good that here was someone of like mind, with the same hunger for the popular and the obscure, the venerable and the freshly composed. Bob Dylan's lifelong immersion in American popular music is evident in his work, widely documented and confirmed by those close to him. From Appalachian murder ballads to the great American songbook, it's all there. Dylan is fascinated by the archaeology of American music, but at the same time he's appalled by it. Nomenclature, categorisation and cultural ethnic divides are an anathema. He surely hates the term Americana. As he told the New York Times in 1997, my songs... What makes them different is that there's a foundation to them. That's why they're still around. They're standing on a strong foundation and subliminally that's what people want to hear. Not always the easiest of reads, Grail Marcus's Invisible Republic located Dylan's place firmly within the American folk tradition. It's touchstone the folklorist Harry Smith's early 50s vinyl box set of over 80 old time songs from two decades before, American folk music an unstable boil of surrealism and fatalism. D Dylan first heard this collection at the start of the 60s in Minneapolis, when briefly a student at the University of Minnesota. Marcus argued that among the various artists anthologised by Smith, a key influence upon the erstwhile undergraduate was the Virginia banjoist and songwriter Doc Boggs. Despite the formidable scholarship and persuasive argument, Invisible Republic makes scant mention of the author's liner notes for the Basement Tapes album, released by Columbia in 1975. Marcus implied the tracks were authentic recordings, despite their more recent enhancement by the band. For all the ammunition he gives his critics, Marcus is surely right to see Dylan's music making in the Catskills and his early 90s recording of Good As I Been To You and World Gone Wrong, the two Back To Basics albums, as restorative and life-enhancing experiences, each in its own way vital to Dylan's survival as a creative force. Indeed, Dylan said as much in Chronicles, and six years earlier in a Mojo interview to promote Time Out of Mind. I didn't have anything. I was concerned with how simple it was to make an album just with myself and nobody else. It was a challenge that I felt was necessary for me to confront. Accompanying the interview was Marx's album review. 
This is as bleak and blasted as any work a major artist in any field has offered in ages. The reappearance of the forgotten past in an empty present is a talisman of time out of mind. The CD's label design embodied Dylan's desire to retrieve and reinvent what he saw as the simplified music of another age. Columbia revived its interwar race records and country outlet, Vivatonal Electrical Process, a precursor to later, more ambitious adaptations of antique artwork, especially for the bootleg series box sets. In 1967, Robbie Robertson was astonished at how many songs, new and old, Dylan bought to Big Pink. Bob was educating us a little. The whole folky thing was still very questionable to us, but he remembered too much, remembered too many songs too well, around 90 altogether. A more recent guitarist, Charlie Sexton, was similarly impressed by his boss's encyclopedic knowledge. I keep asking him, is this one of yours? And he'd just mumble in that gravelly voice, nah, it's from the Civil War. The studio sessions for Love and Theft in 2001 were every bit as educational as the crash course in the nation's old-time songbook at West Sogatese over 20 years earlier. Theme Time Radio Hour with your host Bob Dylan, broadcast between 2006 and 2010 on satellite radio in North America on the BBC in Britain, after both entertainment and education. The programme's hosts drew upon a half-forgotten yet all-inclusive musical heritage that transcended barriers of gender, class and, above all, race and ethnicity. The two-hour show President's Day, episode 68, was aired in America on 13th February 2008 during the presidential primaries and again prior to the November election. Unsurprisingly, the playlist of its genial pro-Obama DJ was dominated by African-American artists. For his overall office special, Dylan mined the rich load of Roosevelt songs. First off was FDR in Trinidad, still a well-known calypso courtesy of Ry Cooder's cover version. However, Dylan played the original recording, a hit in 1937 for Attila the Hun, otherwise known as Raymond Covodo. The song was written by fellow West Indian Fitz McLean, who celebrated two visits to Trinidad by FDR in November and December 1936. Roosevelt was sailing to and from South America with his Secretary of State, Cordell Hull. From Brazil, they travelled via Uruguay to Argentina, where the President delivered the opening address to a long-forgotten body, the Inter-American Conference for the Maintenance of Peace. FDR in Trinidad name-checked Hull while outrageously flattering the Democratic President of the Great Republic. It would be tempting to see this as signalling at best indifference and at worst antipathy towards the King Emperor, but in practice, songwriters like McLean and the better known Kivodo regularly celebrated the royal family. FDR's second visit coincided with the abdication of Edward VIII, who was himself the subject of a best-selling calypso. While the latter's knowledge of Caribbean music was presumably non-existent, the former was a fan. Roosevelt spent a lot of time in the West Indies, usually on fishing trips off the Bahamas. He and the First Lady saw Kivodo, the Attila, and his show band performing at a New York nightclub in 1934, and their enjoyment of Calypso music soon became public knowledge. Recorded in the New York studio, FDR in Trinidad became a hit thanks to the novelty of its popularity inside the White House. On the 10th anniversary of Roosevelt revisiting Port of Spain, FDR in Trinidad was sung by Gerald Clark and his invaders at a celebration of Caribbean music at Town Hall. Roosevelt had been dead 20 months, but Calypso in New York was very much alive. Its presence on local radio is similar to the BBC Light programme's promotion of post-Windrush novelty songs at the start of the 50s. Dylan followed FDR in Trinidad with another highly complimentary song, released by the LA jazz label Aladdin Records in 1948. 
Willie Easton and the Soul Starers, Why I Like Roosevelt. This was a gospel tribute to the late president, written and recorded in April 46 by a Philadelphia musician and concert promoter, Otis Jackson, and covered by several black artists in the early post-war era. A colourful character whose equally colourful career lasted into the 1960s, Willie Easton was a Florida huckster and a musician who made as much money playing in the street as he did on the stage. Easton's unique skills as a steel guitarist and arranger secured him regular work with race records labels in the South, and he clashed with Jackson over copyright and royalty claims for reworked topical songs, and in particular, Why I Like Roosevelt. A fabulous field song, deserving of a millennial hip-hop revival, Jackson's tribute acquired an afterlife courtesy of Jesse Winchester's 1974 album Learn to Love It. Winchester, who in 1976 had crossed into Canada to avoid the draft, switched halfway through the song from praising FDR to thanking the Liberal Prime Ministers who saved him from service in Vietnam, Lester B. Pearson and Pierre Trudeau. Well-intentioned, but poorly executed, Winchester's song was a reflection of the album as a whole, intended to celebrate the singer's acquisition of Canadian citizenship. Devotees of presidential peons are better employed listening to Otis Jackson or to Willie Easton's pirated revamp. In the 1990s, a Dutch musicologist, Guido van Rijn, compiled near-definitive written and audio anthologies of blues and gospel singers, telling the world what they thought of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The message overall was one of goodwill, yet the president's record in challenging segregation and promoting civil rights was poor. Black political activists deemed it abysmal, not least key figures in the Harlem Renaissance such as Langston Hughes, a prolific writer and communist sympathiser. Hughes's jaundiced view of a procrastinating president inspired The Ballad of Roosevelt, published by the left-leaning New Republic in late 1934. After two years of failed promises, poor blacks had done stop believing what they had been told by Roosevelt. Although segregation of government employees was discontinued, Washington took no action to stop discrimination against impoverished African Americans on federal relief programmes. Notoriously, Across the second half of the 1930s, Roosevelt repeatedly refused to endorse an anti-lynching bill. The president defended his appeasement of the Dixiecrats because he depended upon support from the Democratic Party machine across the southern states. His unholy alliance with southern power brokers in Congress was vital for the enactment of New Deal legislation. Critically, re-election and control of Capitol Hill depended upon avoiding any issues that might alienate white southern voters. Nevertheless, Many African Americans did hold the president in high esteem. Admirers of Roosevelt in both rural and urban black communities saw him as a man of compassion who through personal affliction enjoyed some insight into their own suffering. Furthermore, he was married to a first lady consistent in her condemnation of discrimination. Very much her own woman, Eleanor Roosevelt, acted as a counterweight to southern-based aides and advisers inside the administration. Her actions in publicly refuting prejudice were of huge symbolic importance, most famously when she quit the Daughters of the American Revolution in protest at their ban on the contralto Marian Anderson performing at Washington's Constitution Hall. FDR authorised the Lincoln Memorial as an alternative venue and then invited Anderson to sing at a state dinner for King George VI and Queen Elizabeth. Roosevelt famously sought to minimise how much midlife polio affected his capacity to operate as Commander-in-Chief, and yet songs in praise of the President invariably highlighted how bravely he had handled his health condition. Why I Like Roosevelt saw Otis Jackson articulate black identification with a crippled yet resilient leader. Even the cantankerous Delta Blues man Big Joe Williams was moved to mourn a white man so saintly he helped the crippled boys and he almost healed the blind. Williams wrote, His spirit lives on 
in April 1945. Perhaps it's the primitive percussion driving the song along, but Big Joe's studio recording has the spontaneity and immediacy of a man still in grief. Meanwhile, somewhere between Clarksdale and Chicago, James Jackable Trades McCain recorded Good Mr Roosevelt as a jumping on the bandwagon 78. Poor sound quality means that in places McCain's sentiments are hard to comprehend, but the combination of voice and piano is curiously reminiscent of late period Randy Newman. This song would not sound out of place on the suitably named Dark Matter. Despite the worst effects of the depression on African Americans across the South, no blues singer dared record songs hostile to the president in the way that J.B. Lenoir did once Eisenhower was in the White House. Born in 1929, Lenoir was too young to take on FDR. His patron in late 40s Chicago, Big Bill Brinsey, did slip in an oblique reference to Roosevelt when, backed by boogie-woogie pianist Albert Ammons, premiered Just a Dream at Carnegie Hall in Christmas week 1938. On successive nights, the producer, promoter and anti-discrimination activist John Hammond staged From Spiritual to Swing, an all-star evening of American Negro music. Brunsey was added to the bill after the news came north of Robert Johnson's death. The audience laughed so much when he sang, Dreamed I was in the White House, sitting in the President's chair. I dreamed he's shaking my hand and he said, Bill, I'm so glad you're here. But that was just a dream. The Bruzy's label, Vocalion, released a studio version of Just a Dream early in the new year. African Americans were by no means alone in singing FDR's praises, with each election marked by campaign and celebratory songs. In 1940, Irving Berlin raised no objection to the Democrats adopting God Bless America, the alternative anthem made famous by radio star Kate Smith. However, a more familiar theme tune was Happy Days Are Here Again, played first at the Democratic Party's 1932 convention and resurrected every four years after. The song, first performed in the 1929 Hollywood musical Chasing Rainbows, was soon synonymous with the lifting of Prohibition. Following The Only Thing We Have to Fear Is Fear Itself, inaugural speech on 4th March 1933, W. Leo Daniel wrote the victory anthem On to Victory, Mr Roosevelt. It's a proto-Keynesian plea for action. So cut expense, tear down the fence between supply, demand. Put folks to work, don't let them shirk, let farmers keep the land. With a stirring, upbeat chorus. Soon after Barack Obama's inauguration, Ludum Wainwright III resurrected onto victory Mr Roosevelt for his scathing commentary on the post-2007 global financial crisis, Ten Songs for the New Depression. The new president's inaugural address had pointedly drawn on New Deal rhetoric, urging the nation to dust ourselves off and begin again the work of remaking America. Wainwright added a further verse and adapted the chorus to mark the arrival of another president to help us find our way, a younger man with darker skin. Such a prospect would have appalled Pappy O'Daniel, famous in Texas for his songs serenading the Lone Star State, his promotion on the wireless of homegrown country artists like Bob Wills, and his ability to get elected as governor and then senator on a deeply conservative Democratic ticket. Ten years after writing On to Victory, Mr Roosevelt, Senator O'Daniel was loudly demanding that the leader of his party make way for a more cautious, less divisive figure. Victory in November 1936 saw Kentucky's Dixie Songberg, Bill Cox, write and record We've Got Franklin D. Roosevelt Back Again for the Sears Roebuck label Conqueror Records. This was a hillbilly sing-along, anticipating four more years of FDR, putting money in our jeans and keeping lick illegal. Here was a president intent on giving everyone a good time. 
Over two decades later, on their album Songs from the Depression, folk revivalists, the new Lost City Ramblers, resurrected Cox's Mail Order 78 as a vehicle for virtuoso finger-picking. Since then, it's been a standard for bluegrass guitarists eager to impress. Bill Cox had a like-minded audience in poor southern whites, but the 1936 presidential election proved a pivotal moment in the black vote swinging solidly behind the Democratic Party. In July 1938, a Fortune magazine poll gave President Roosevelt an 84.7% approval rating within the Negro community. That autumn, the topical review Sing Out the News was staged in New York, spawning FDR Jones, arguably the most famous song written about Roosevelt. The show was set in Harlem and the lyrics gently satirised the president's popularity within African-American families when naming their baby boys. He'll be famous, as famous as he can be. How can he be a dud or a stick in the mud when he's Franklin D. Roosevelt Jones? With Ella Fitzgerald on vocals, bandleader Chick Webb's cover of the song was a big hit on both sides of the Atlantic. Other black performers who recorded FDR Jones included Cab Calloway and the Mills Brothers, but the only interpretation on par with Fitzgerald's was sung by a white artist, Judy Garland. However impressive her performance, the harsh reality is that Garland first sang the song when blacked up as a vaudeville minstrel, playing opposite Mickey Rooney in the 1941 musical Babes on Broadway. Chick Webb, ace percussionist and Harlem's King of Swing, refashioned the big band sound which had come out of Chicago, while still retaining its roots in New Orleans jazz. Webb was first and foremost an entertainer, with little time to reflect on his musical heritage. Yet by the mid-1930s, a growing academic interest in Afro-American folklore, including music, paralleled and cut across the eagerness of enthusiasts and serious scholars to record and revive folk songs from New England, Texas and the Great Plains, as well as the Appalachians. The presumption of an indigenous folk tradition, but one marked by distinctive black-white identities, acquired academic respectability in 1937, when the musicologist Helen L. Kaufman published a grand narrative of American popular music, From Jehovah to Jazz. This ivory tower presumption of racial bifurcation flew in the face of reality, as anyone listening to, say, Lead Belly or Mississippi John Hurt would quickly discover. Eleanor Roosevelt was surely sceptical of any attempt to compartmentalise what today we would label Roots Music. <laughs> 